Greetings, and welcome to Talking Trek to You, where an expert and a noob boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is JG McCoy, and I'm here with my co-host, as always, Kev Guzzer. Say hi, Kev. Hi. How are you doing this week? I mean, no specific episode to talk about, so no joke today. I'm just very excited to talk about the first season of Star Trek, the original series, in recap. Yes, in a break from our usual format, this episode, we are not going to be discussing an individual episode. We are going to be discussing the season as a whole, and... Well, we don't have anybody to discuss it with. It's just the two of us to see how things have progressed. So normally we would either have an episode recount at this stage or we would have an introduction from a guest and what Star Trek means to them. But I think this time, uh, Kev, you're our noob and mm-hmm. you're being exposed to Star Trek for the first time. Yeah. So um, I guess I guess it's kind of up to you to answer the question this time. So what's Star Trek to you? Star Trek to me is a film I watched in theaters in 2009 and had a great time with and watched it many times on DVD in college. Um, There were two sequels of varying quality. Um, And then there were (laughs) a a series launched as a streaming service called CBS All Access. And I was like, well, this is probably a good entry point more than any of that. If this is all too daunting to get into, I've kept up with all of Discovery, Lower Decks, Prodigy, and Strange New Worlds. I watched one season of Picard. And then they started introducing Next Generation stuff, and I was like, well, I can't watch all of this. Um, I have seen about a dozen odd Next Generation episodes, several from the first season. I made a stab at trying to watch it on my own before in the run-up to Picard, and then a few others here and there. I had seen maybe Space Seed in the run-up to Into Dark. I think I did watch Space Seed Into Darkness, but I had no memory of it when we watched it for this podcast. And then we did this <laughs> podcast, and I've now seen all of this first season of the original series in total. And I had a great time. Well, firstly, I'm really glad to hear that you had a great time because I would hate to think that this podcast had put you through something that you hadn't enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's good. Um, I, I, I think one of the one of the interesting things about coming to this podcast from a, a different kind of angle, as we do, I know like classic uh, setup for like a noob and an expert to kind of dive into stuff, but it's really unusual to have something like Star Trek, which is such a cultural phenomenon. Uh, to be, you know, able to come to it in this in this perspective. So this is a kind of sort of general overview of season one. You say you've enjoyed it, but do you feel that the quality is kind of what you were expecting going into it? I think overall, yes. And in specifics, no. I'll, I'll elaborate on that. I had a good sense of Star Trek, um, the original series overall going into it, just through general culture osmosis. I think the uh, the two big highlights I think I didn't mention in my history were, I mentioned this thing on our first episode, um, my real first episode of Star Trek was through Futurama's parody episode. They did several Star Trek refs throughout the run of that show. But specifically, there was one where they got the vast majority of the original cast to play themselves, and they were all abducted and put on a planet where they had to reenact episodes of Star Trek, which was a very Star Trek-y premise for that show, and also incredibly funny. And even not understanding a lot of specific jokes, it was just... The specificity made it just so funny, but I also didn't pick up, oh, this is what Star Trek is like. I've also seen the TOS movies, not throughout my life, but shortly before doing this podcast. So I also then had that expectation of, oh, this is how they really act as their characters and in a big budget setting that is a different one than these episodic television show. So I generally had the sense of TOS um, going into this. 
And I think I, knowing my tastes in like kitsch and like appreciating not even dated things, but just sort of like things of their time for what they are and working with limitations, but also more freedoms of those times. Like I had a good sense of idea what Star Trek was and it didn't really surprise me in that regard. I knew to expect like ropey aliens and costumes and a little bit of overdramatics and um, some plots will work, some plots won't. There'll be some moments that, Ugh, that's a little sexist and racist, but then other moments are like, oh, this is so forward thinking and intelligent. I think what really surprised me in the specifics were how well some of these episodes held up and how even when braced for some dodgy concepts, some of them were really still disappointed. It's a show with a lot of range, um, more than a lot of TV show I think you watch nowadays where I'm like, I like logged things on this app called Serialize, just basically like letterboxed for television, which is basically like you give every episode you watch and out of five star rating and have a little diary of what you've watched at the end of the day. Um, and I think this has, where usually a lot of the shows I watch tend to hew close to a certain range of scores. I was pretty much all over the place. The vast majority of episodes sure scored between seven and nine, but there are some real stinkers and some real highlights. And I think that's sort of the exciting thing about like the sixties televisions. You were got a little looser and you could really do a whole range of quality because of that. That's a long one explanation. <laughs> no, no, that's fantastic. I think the range of the original show is, is one of the things that makes it such an interesting proposition in the 21st century. And it is one of the advantages of non-serialized television shows. You know, uh, if you are going through, and th this is something that, it's a circle I sometimes think that um, DS9 struggles to square. I know DS9 is a critic's darling and, and sort of beyond reproach, even though I, I don't think it is beyond reproach. Um, but it is very hard to do that balance between kind of serialized storytelling where, you know, it's, it's a very modern way of, of, of writing and producing television and it, it keeps viewers hooked on the way through and having standalone episodes. Now, Obviously, that's not something which is unique to uh, to DS Nine, and like particularly in the nineties, and in in such shows which were contemporaneous with them, like X Files is a perfect example. It really struggled to balance like Monster of the Week and ongoing kind of myth stories. And one of the things that the original series of Star Trek simply doesn't have to worry about is all right, but what about next week? Because there is no what about next week. It's just another episode, and in a way that gives it a certain amount of strength, I think. I'm, I'm really curious to hear what you think about this, but I think it's one of the things that allows the original series to take big swings. It doesn't have to be concerned about what's going to happen next week and what are going to be the consequences. And so particularly early on, there's a lot of really weird stories that just don't... I mean, they barely seem to exist in the same universe, but they also do exist in the same universe, and that kind of makes them a, a fascinating proposition and that that freedom to genuinely kind of not be hemmed in by character or storyline or arcs or anything like that does give a degree of creative fluidity that I don't think a lot of shows which are very determined to follow um you know arcs or paths have and, and I really love that about the original show but do you think that's true do you think that do you think that's something that, that the show benefits from I think it's a strength and a weakness. I think it's a strength. I mean, the last shows we talked about are the perfect dual examples of this. 
it's a strength because you can suddenly have the character stumble across a big time cave and they go back in time. <laughs> Tell a lovely story about like fate and uh, destiny and like how that, how the needs of the many sometimes means the sacrifice of the few. And that means like, you don't have to acknowledge that A, there's time travel in this universe and B, Kirk let a woman die in a very cold manner. That doesn't have to haunt the show for the rest of the run. Um, on the flip side, you have Operation Annihilate, where, well, we need Spock to be in the next season. So, oh, he was he cured his blindness with a little Vulcan quirk of biology. And then everything just feels kind of flat and pointless because we just have to get back to the status quo every time. So, yeah, that is just the interesting thing about it is the need for a rigid status quo means really limits what you can tell. But with because of that rigid status quo, you can take these big swings and rubber band back to what the viewers are familiar with. That familiarity is one of the things that I think makes the first season so appealing. It, it's so easy to invest in the characters and the way that they interact with each other. And, you know, we'll get on to talk about individual performances and all the rest of it as we go through. But one of the great strengths, one of the great joys of the first season is just how easy it is to mm -hmm. fall into that way of, you know, relating to the characters, bouncing along with them, going through all their little quirks, all their little bits and pieces. And that's not just the, the sort of three principles. As we gradually start to get the um, secondary characters fleshed out as well, we have that, that sense that there is a broader world, that there is more going on than just what happens in the bridge and that's not just um, you know like scotty or uhura or whatever it's also like a little incidental bit parts like like leslie who just crop up in a handful of episodes but by having their presence there you get this sort of more fleshed out world but like you said everything still rubber bands back to to how we want it to be at the end of the episode it's a really curious balance to strike because we do get a sense that the relationship between particularly between the three principles deepens over the course of this season you know it's easy to make jokes at the end of the season about slash and about the way that kirk holds spock in in operation annihilate and they're just clearly having a nice little cuddle um but it's harder to make those jokes at the beginning of the episode because that rapport hasn't developed yet so you have that status quo where everything goes back to what it should be at the end of the episode when the credits roll. But at the same time, there is still a sense that these are characters, and of course actors as well, who are working together, who are developing, who are becoming a part of each other's life. And that, that very slow but very gradual change in the way that the characters interact does mean, I mean, it's nothing, it's not even approaching serialization, but it does mean that it's easy to invest in their relationships on a sort of week-to-week -week basis. Yeah, and it's something that has been fascinating to develop over the course of the series, because you start with really only Shatner's Kirk and a little bit of Nimoy's Spock being fleshed out at all but that camaraderie you mentioned isn't there until about halfway through i think it is that halfway point we hit shore leaving galileo 7 which i think we remarked at the time these are episodes where the characters are driving the story and not just the plot because the characters have now been established enough that not just the viewer knows how to watch them but the writers know how to write them and i think it is something that like I don't know, you make the joke, you said jokes about uh, Slash, like Kirk and Spock, but I do think that is something that was legitimately hit on. I don't know, I mean, I 
highly doubt it was conscious on the part of our sort of big three creative people behind the scene, Roddenberry, Kuhn, and Fontana, to like input gay subtext into their show. But I think they realized these two actors have that camaraderie and that sort of very tenderness with each other. Let's write scenes where they play up that and they play those better. So let's write more scenes that play up that. It's that kind of beautiful cycle, like a great TV show with a great staff behind it can run into where once you see how well an actor plays a role and once you get familiar writing those roles, you can see sort of the code uh, I'm, I'm speaking hypothetically here. I am not a TV writer, but I imagine TV writers start to see the sort of code of these are the beats that work so we can emphasize them and create something that is like the repeated behavior starts to flesh out who this person. Well, absolutely. And I think in, in that way, the show is really, well, you can say luck or judgment, I suppose. Well, I was going to say lucky to have DC Fontana as the script editor sort of towards the end of that first season, because having somebody like her on the staff means that it isn't just a boys club. And so you do, I don't want to fall back on like the cliches of, you know, well, you know, like women are more empathetic or any of that kind of stuff. Obviously I'm, I would never right. dream of being that sexist, but it does mean that you've got somebody on the staff who is approaching these characters from a different lived experience. And I'm sure DC Fontana's experience is very different from, from Gene Kuhn or Gene Roddenberry's. So that means that there's scope within the creative forces that are shaping the show to take it in directions where if that had just been Joe Smith or whatever, you know, like maybe there wouldn't be those kind of emphases on the characters, but it's exactly those moments that make Kirk and Spock so easy to buy into and McCoy as well. You know, I mean, we, it's one of the things about Slash when, when people talk about it, you know, it's always Kirk Spock and that's fine. But in some ways, McCoy acts as such a father figure to them. You know, he's he's not involved in the romance, but he seems very happy to see his boys doing so well together, you know, and, and, and that plays into it as well. You know, and the fact that DeForest Kelly is so incredibly avuncular and so easy to watch you know his his kind of paternalism just radiates off the screen anyway and it produces this thing but i do think having dc fontana there as that kind of creative force that isn't just part of the boys club and so is prepared to inject maybe a little bit more emotion a little bit more heart a little bit more uh depth into these characters really affects it and you know i mean the fact that shatner and namoy got on so well together also plays into that so it become you know it kind of ends up feeding itself because they have great chemistry on screen together it becomes easier to write towards those 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 tendencies and because they write towards those tendencies the chemistry they have on screen increases and so on and so on and we'll see this more as we go on to season two spoilers but you know it, it just works so incredibly well and yeah having mccoy there is that kind of third element just just really is what what helps bring it all live oh absolutely i those even before I watched this show for this podcast, or I'd even seen the movies, I just knew through that same cultural osmosis that they are the id ego super ego. McCoy is the id, Spock the super ego, Kirk is the ego. They're like the three person TV setup that so many other TV set three person TV setups would copy. It's just a great dynamic where you have Kirk and Spock as the Angel and Devil isn't quite right because neither is really the good or bad, but uh, just the two sort of consciousness on Kirk's shoulders, urging him to do something. It's, and we don't always get that, but that is the sort of default position for them. 
And I think that is sort of a wonderful little dynamic they have, like you said. It's very fleshed out. All these characters feel very real and very well performed. And every time you have those three conferring like that, it really works. It does. And I think when we talk about the writing of this show and the way that the show is able to write towards its characters, it's worth remembering that that's, you know, that's pretty new thing at this point when it comes to science fiction. We've had, obviously, the Twilight Zone, and that was the big kind of like sci-fi cultural totem up to this point. And and Twilight Zone invests in its characters. Of course it does. But by the nature of the fact that it's an anthology show, you don't get the consistency, you don't get the coherence that comes from having the same characters week to week. Now, there are other shows around at the time. So you have Lost in Space and you have Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and other shows which kind of overlap with, uh, oh God, and Time Tunnel, heaven help us. Um, the overlap A little with, show called Doctor Who. Uh, well, I, I, I was specifically talking about American shows, but yes, okay. obviously Doctor Who as well. Absolutely. Um, yeah, at this point, I don't, at this point, Doctor Who hasn't been shown in America and Star Trek hasn't been shown in the UK. So there's no overlap between them. But as we start to develop these kind of characters and we start to see that science fiction can cope with more than just like Flash Garden style ray guns and wahaha. Uh, you know, that it, it, it's one of the shows that helps to deepen the palette of what it is that science fiction can do. And I think that's a really important point about the first season. There's uh, points, again, to be made about the second, especially the third season, about the, the, in the way that it kind of draws back a little bit from that. But the first season, that's a really kind of powerful statement of intent. It really is doing something uh, that science fiction hasn't done before. And a lot of people will be a little bit derogatory towards the first season of Star Trek, actually all of the original series, sort of saying, oh, well, you know, it's kind of, all it is is just like Forbidden Planet, you know, the the, the, the 1950s movie, um, but week to week. Um, and Forbidden Planet's a great movie, of course it is. Nobody would ever choose to deny that. But it, at the same time, there's so much more to Star Trek in terms of the, the palette of characters it uses and the way that it's able to have characters who aren't just stock archetypes. I mean, to a certain extent, Forbidden Planet is a little bit restricted for that because it's obviously a remake of The, template, uh, the Tempest. But at the same time, there's still scope to do more. And a lot of the characters in that movie are stock type, the, the, the burly captain or the, the treacherous person or the, you know, the busty assistant or whatever. It, it, everybody falls into their, their little roles. Star Trek steps out from that. And it really deserves credit, I think, from, yeah, being able to develop and deepen the way that characters can be used in sort of American sci-fi. And yeah, and that is a good point that you made about Doctor Who it wasn't in America. So it's sort of almost parallel thinking because I think everything you just said, it feels so accurate to me and it does feel like Dr. Who is kind of the only other show doing that, but yeah. they don't yeah. have access to each other. So yeah. it And I think that's significant that Star Trek has five shows on the air right now, I guess technically four, uh, and soon it'll be three. Uh, well, we'll see how the streaming comedy keeps the franchise alive in the future. <laughs> but, um, and then Doctor Who has like a much hyped reboot coming for its 60th anniversary, a reboot almost within a current reboot. And these are still things like active fan cultures and lots of interest around them. And on the flip side, Lost in Space had a 
semi-notable Netflix version and has otherwise faded to time once again. And all those other shows you mentioned, I have barely heard of. So it's, <laughs> I think there's something to be said about sci-fi franchise at the time, like being the first ones to invest in character and in like thoughtful stories. Cause that's what also what Dr. Who was doing as well with like the historicals as opposed to just all the sci-fi adventures and even something with like the Daleks and Cybermen, there's conceptions behind these characters and metaphors and uh, ideas that make them stand out from just here's a bad guy with a ray gun, at least in the better stories featuring the classic monsters. Um, so yeah, both our shows with very noble goals at the outset. And even if throughout various incarnations and seasons, those get lost in the weeds a bit, it does speak to why those would stand the test of time and others wouldn't. Well, absolutely. Um, for what it's worth, Star Trek in the UK was first shown between uh, Patrick Triton's last season and John Pertwee's first one, so 1969-1970. Technically speaking, uh, Doctor Who began on uh, 1965 on uh, CBC, but it was dropped and then not shown again until 1972. That was obviously a, a, a few William Hartnell episodes. So yeah, there really is no overlap. But like you said, it's so interesting to see those characters um, and those approaches developing in parallel to each other. The fact that those other shows, oh, you seem to have forgotten about the Matt LeBlanc version of uh, Lost in Space, the movie, which I, I really recommend that you you maintain that ignorance because yeah. it's not good. Um, I guess I yeah. remember what was most recent. I, I know that exists, but I, that's all I want to do is know that it exists. That's the correct approach, I have to say. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's great to have um, a show like this that is able to be so um, so far reaching and and have so much sort of developmental impact on the way that that TV um, science fiction will use characters. It's kind of fascinating as well to revisit it in the context of this podcast because you know I've been watching Star Trek. This has been mentioned many times on, on, on this podcast um, since the sort of mid-1970s because my, my dad used to be a bit of a fan and, and he was a bit embarrassed to admit it. But having a young son certainly helped to, uh, certainly helped to give him a good excuse to sit down in front of the telly and, and, and watch it. And so it's always been part of my life, but it's, it's very different to have something which is just always there and actually sit down and revisit in a sort of constructive, critical fashion. And it's, I've, I, I mean, of course, I'm going to say this anyway, but I've really loved the opportunity to be able to go back and explore a series which has always been a part of my life for half a century now, because I'm ridiculously old. And it's been fascinating to see it develop because I have never really sat down and watched the classic show from where no man has gone before, right up until, well, assuming, assuming assuming that we make it to the end of the third season, I'm sure we will, but right up until, um, you know, Turnabout Intruder. And it's great to see the show in that context. So it, it's something that, you know, I, I'm absolutely fascinated by your kind of new perspective uh, as, you know, a complete newcomer to it. Um, but it's been really interesting to kind of have a look at my own perspective and really see the way the show has developed in a, in a fashion that I've never actually done before. Yeah, I think it's odd because I would advocate to anyone, you don't have to watch shows in order, obviously, and you can just pick the episodes you want to watch or just jump in at any time. Star Trek especially is a show you can just watch the hits for. Um, and I, it's advice that I freely give out 
and because I believe that's how TV should function and also never follow because I love to see how things develop and change <laughs> over the course of time. And I love to see the low points as well as the high points and from like almost an anthropological, anthropological perspective. So yeah, it's, it's, it's advice I wish I could follow where it's like, Oh, watch things in order and just um, you have only so much time in your life, but this is what my brain likes to see is what you're talking about. Seeing a show start from a point and slowly build itself up and figure out what works and figure out what doesn't. And I think that first season of TOS when viewed in airing order, just because that was the simpler thing to do to help people follow along with this podcast and help us keep track of it. But still, uh, that still gives you a general arc of what they figured out and when. Well, absolutely. And I think that probably gives us a good opportunity to be able to sort of move into the ways of the first season itself. So I guess the question is really, if, if we're approaching the first season with a sort of broad overview at this point, is what elements do you think, like coming to it fresh, worked and, and really sort of gave life to the series? I think first of mind, and it's honestly not what I was expecting. This is one of the big surprises. But the thing that worked the most is the performances. At least our core six characters who wind up sticking around. There's plenty of uh, guest stars and guest lieutenants and um, other people who are a little rag, like um, shaggy here and there, who, like I think Lieutenant Leslie you mentioned is the one I know of name. A couple others recur, and some of them very diverse. Some of them are good, and you wish they could stick around longer, but it's really our six central performers, Shatner, Nimoy, Kelly, Nichols, Takei, and oh god, Duhan, Duhan. That's it. <laughs> My brain went to Montgomery Scott because he's just so Scottish. Um, but yes, uh, like those are the one. Like it's you see why they become the core cast of the show, especially our central three, um, Shatner, Nimoy, and Kelly, because they are just so good at their jobs. I think that was like I. I rattled off everything I knew about the show that I knew worked about going in. I think that was the big surprise because all I knew of them was almost like the Kabuki version of those characters. Cause I'd, I'd only seen the parodies. I'd only seen the pastiches. I didn't realize, Oh my God, William Shatner can really dramatically sell this material. He's not just all overacting and bluster and long pauses. He is a, in the context of this show, he is such a legitimately great actor and all of those things get parodied often on again, uh, really work in selling this character. Yeah. I think it's the, the core cast is really the biggest strength that the series has. And even through the episodes, which are maybe a tad more ropey than others, it's, it's the thing that keeps shining through is just how good the core cast are and how much they are able to commit to the material it is such a thin line, you know, so much of the material could be ridiculous. I think when we talked about, um, the, when we were talking about uh, the devil in the dark, like it's some guy under a, a, like a pizza costume. Like, you know, it would be so easy for it to collapse into sort of camp or for it to collapse into kind of something ridiculous and sort of Mystery Science Theater 3000. But it never does. And it's the conviction that that core cast are able to sort of bring across and emphasize that that makes it work. Even the the flying, uh, you know, the flying vomit in Operation Annihilate, like it's beyond ridiculous. But the cast still work hard to try and sell it, and that that sort of core 
conviction, that belief that whatever it is they're doing isn't camp. It isn't ridiculous. It isn't, you know, just over the top acting. It, it's what makes the whole thing hang together. And as long as that remains the case, and I think it really has throughout the entirety of the first season, then the show functions pretty much perfectly. That's not to say that every episode is perfectly is perfectly uh, well put together, but it just means that the show can get on with the business of being Star Trek. Yeah, it's... And that's what you really need. I mean, because it's a show that's so much functioning within technical limitations. And I think it's another element I want to highlight once you're off the cast element. But uh, because of the technical limitations, like you said, you need people who are selling it, who the emotion is so believable for. And... I think Shatner and Nimoy especially like are embodying these such larger than life characters. And Nimoy is playing such like an alien species and he has to sort of fully lock into sort of that mode. And I think, especially of course, this season, he gets that down so well. Um, that is such a tightrope to walk where you are portraying something that is so unhuman yet so relatable at the same time. And he is, I mean, it's a truly staggering performance in a quiet way, whereas Shatner's performance, as mentioned, is staggering in a loud way. (laughs) He has to also emotionally sell more of the premise than a lot of the other characters, because he's at the center of it most of the time. And sell it, he does. Oh, he really does. And in a way, I mean, I don't mean this in any way to diminish Shatner, but I think he is the slightly easier job because the big brash, yes. bold captain is like I talked about archetypes before when I was talking about the way that Star Trek broadened out what uh, science fiction could do. But like the big captain in charge of stuff is still an archetype and it's one which you can import from World War II movies or, you know, from any kind of uh media where you require that you could it could be Edgar Rice Burroughs or it could be you know whatever you know uh you know terribly British people going out to explore stuff there's a big captain at the front of it and here he is you know like that's all a thing um and you know yeah there's plenty of gung-ho uh characters that exist prior to Kirk so that does in a way give William Shatner something that he can tap into like I said that's not meant to be diminishing because I think he does an extraordinarily good job of bringing Kirk to life and you can tell um, sort of maybe about a quarter to a third of the way through the first season you can tell when the writers have seen the way that Shatner performs and start writing towards that rather than a slightly more generic captain that you get earlier on when you know the writers are still working with basically the series bible rather than actually having seen uh, Shatner perform the role When it comes to Nimoy, like you say, he's much more alien character. He's much more someone that isn't just going to be an off-the-shelf archetype. He has to be able to embody something which is wholly different. And Nimoy's performance is extraordinary. I mean, that's that's so obvious a thing to say as to be banal, but it does bear, you know, repeating. He is so good. And one of the things about watching the show through in order is that you get to have that experience of him just like week in, week out, 
nailing it, nailing it, nailing it. Not every episode is great, although so many of the uh, first season episodes are great. It's kind of amazing hit rate. Um, but even in the episodes which are weak, even in the ones which falter, like his performance never really does, and he just keeps going. And and that again, it, it comes back to that conviction. It comes back to that sense that everyone who is involved in this show really, really wants to be able to give it everything that they have, and you just can't help but see that. Yeah, it's it's so obvious that both Shatner and Amoy believe in this show and believe what they're delivering and even in sort of the worst episodes there's a conviction there at least at this point in the show's run where yeah they they almost you can feel that they want to succeed and they're going to give it their all it's and it's remarkable it's fantastic i love it so much um and then i think our third of the triangle here is the force kelly who I think stands in contrast because Shatner and Amoy are both giving such visible effort into their characters that pays off wonderfully. Whereas Kelly makes it, everything he does seem so natural and just so um, befitting of what that character is. And it's just, yeah, it just goes down so smoothly. Everything he's doing. He is such, he brings passion in such like a quiet, but intense way. He then plays like fun and charming and it's just he is that character so thoroughly. Um, I, I almost even think that's just how he is in real life. I don't know if that's true of the case, but like, yeah, it it's a and it's a it's a performance that stands in such contrast to his two main co-stars. Absolutely, it's it's it's, it's charming and it's avuncular and it's paternal and it's everything that you want from that role. I, I think it's quite easy to tell watching the first season that. Uh, Kelly is just that little bit older. He's just got a little bit more experience under his belt than the rest of the cast. Again, that's not in any way meant to be uh, a demerit but it, it, to the others, but it, it just gives him that extra little bit of authority that that role needs. It gives him a little bit extra presence that he's he's been around the block a few times. He knows what the story is and he can just get on with the business of being that character. It informs McCoy every single step of the way. And I mean, yeah, I, I'm, I'm led to believe that he was a nice guy in real life. I don't know the full story there, and I wouldn't want to go too far into that. But regardless, he is someone who can evoke the spirit of that character without apparently breaking a sweat. He doesn't seem to make any effort. And even even in the sort of more dramatic moments where, um, you know, he has to really kind of ramp up the tension or whatever, you don't ever get the sense that you're watching an actor really go for it. He just is. And that kind of ability to project the character without ever seeming to be putting in the work, I don't. that sounds derogatory as well. I don't mean it to be, but it's just such a brilliant way of being able to perform. And like you said, um, Shatner and Amoy give very visible performances. The fact that Kelly is able to do it in such a relaxed, almost kind of offhanded way is exactly why the contrast between the three characters works. He's able to, you know, embody the the humanity and the kindness and the passion and the real massive heart that lies at the center of McCoy. And he does it, yeah, apparently with no effort at all. That's really incredible. It's a kind of naturalism that stands out from 
TV, like science fiction television at the time. Naturalism. Of, That's exactly the word I was yeah. looking for. Thanks oh, I was looking for it too. I, I, I thought of it halfway through you were talking. I was like, that was the word I was reaching for the entire time as well. But yes, um, yeah, I, I almost, I'm trying to arraign myself back from being too extreme, like DeForest Kelly was New Hollywood before New Hollywood existed. But that is like a little bit kind yeah, of like that. Where yeah, it's like, yeah. That's why he stands out um, and why he's the one who comes back for almost every episode and then is in the top build cast for the remaining two seasons is because he just has it. And a lot of the like, other guest stars and featured players and stuff, um, well, the ones that have it also come back. You're Nichelle Nichols or George Takei's. And the ones that don't have it uh, just quietly leave the show. Or, I mean, I, then there's the whole Grace Lee Whitney issue, which is a whole other can of worms, but... In general, yeah, that's the, been the tendency of this cast where, yeah, it's DeForest Kelly. He is just so impressive that you have to bring this guy into the main fold. Uh, moving from performances to just another thing that sort of impressed me about the season as a whole and I want to really highlight is, I mentioned this earlier, the, how it works within technical limitations. Now, obviously, sometimes you get flying pancake aliens or whatever was going on with the monster and the man trap with the big snout and everything. <laughs> but sometimes you get the Gorn, which are impressive looking. Sometimes you get Vulcans and Romulans, which is a more subtler shift, but they work. Um, and I think I really respect this show for taking these big swings. I know Devil in the Dark, that is like almost the biggest one we have to mention, where it's the it almost looks like a little dog under a blanket running around. And then it is sold fully convincingly um, as a real alien creature. I, I have to pull out the Wikipedia again to remember the exact um, dancer who performed that creature, but it was such an incredible performance. We shattered out on that specific episode. And when these limitations, when these sort of stuff like that worked, it worked so well because of those performances selling it and because of the direction and just the craft behind the show selling it. And it's, I think, truly impressive how if you just sort of let your guard down a little bit and just embrace it sincerely, this show does feel impressive for its time. Oh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think craft is a very good word to describe what a lot of this first season does. It, it There's really good uh, craft work involved, you know. Um, there's just such a... A commitment week in to week out, week in week out to producing a show that lands what it can do every time. Sometimes it can be complex set pieces. Sometimes it can be something like the Galileo Seven, where it's just like a bunch of people sitting about in a shuttlecraft having a moral argument, you know. But the show will commit to that craft of getting those things right every single time. And again, it's what makes the show so easy to buy into, so easy to invest in. That idea that whatever it is, whether it's a, a ropey map painting or whether it's something which is completely convincing, whether it's something that's a one and done or something which, you know, like we still look at Romulan and Klingon makeup today, um, you know, whatever it is, it's all part of the fabric of the show and part of the fabric that the of the universe that these characters inhabit. There's no sense that the show stops beyond the four walls of your television set you know um, it's not necessarily in a, a breaking the fourth wall kind of way but the show is very good at having the craft of building whole worlds whole universes whole societies whole federations 
out of the craft of you know some guy running around under a, under a pizza blanket that's a really extraordinary thing and it's just not something that every show can pull off so again like this first season it deserves so much credit for the the conviction and the craft that goes into it when i was talking about craft i was just having these obvious things but there's so many other little things i noticed and then almost stopped noticing throughout the run that just work i mean much hay is made about how something hits the ship the camera shakes someone throws themselves around it's an effect they still use in Star Trek shows to this day. It's, it's just <laughs> a very, they hit on a solution to how to portray this that is, you don't need to improve on it. And there's also just so, the way they use the sets of the Enterprise and have the camera move around them. I think as they get more familiar with the sets, the camera starts to get a little more flourish to them and a little bit more comfortable of like where to place the camera and things like that. And like moving from set to set, there's just so much skill there from like that old school television craftsmanship skill using the sound stages as these great playgrounds to sort of set these things in that I just really admire. I think all of the sets look pretty great. It's an amazing bridge. It still is the bridge that they are, um, that everything is the standard that everything's being held to. Uh, I think like, I love, McCoy's Medical Bay. I love a lot of the little random rooms we see. The Energizer Bay is, of course, iconic as well. The Transporter Bay is what I meant to say, where they say Energize. Um, there's just so much, like, just, oh, put a little flashing button here and a little dial there, and all of those little details just add up to a fully convincing set. Like, it, I rarely thought about, oh, this is a soundstage that people had to build to establish because the production design sells itself so well. I wonder if I did think about that. I was just so impressed how much care and detail is put into every sort of nook and cranny. Yeah, I think that Enterprise Bridge set does deserve, a, you know, its own little production credit because, or at least in this podcast, if nothing else, because it is such an extraordinary piece of design. It's, I, I loathe the word iconic, but I honestly don't have a good synonym for that, but sufficiently manages to get across just how well iconic that set is you know there like you said there's a reason that it's it's still the standard to which everything else is held it's an amazing piece of design it's an amazing piece of stage work it allows so much fluidity in terms of the direction in terms of the way that the actors can move the split level alone is just such a a simple thing to do, but it allows the dynamism of being able to jump over barriers and run up steps and, you know, split level shooting and all this kind of stuff. It's an amazing piece of design. And, you know, I know it's it's one of the great icons of, of sort of television production, but it really deserves to be. And it's worth shouting out here in the first season, simply because this is this is going to be the main time we'll have the opportunity to talk about it. Even like Spock's little hooded viewer with the blue light, like that's such a simple effect it's basically just a cardboard box and a torch and yet it's incredibly iconic it's his reader it's his access to the the knowledge of the whole of the federation it's where he can um you know i don't know get rsi and back pain from from a deeply uh non uh, ergonomic seating position whatever but it just works it's such a powerful piece of design 
And that's true throughout the entire bridge set. Like even Kirk's chair is such a great piece of design. There, You might quibble about why it has a eject pod button on it for court-martial, but also it doesn't really matter. That's not the point. It just, it's so striking. Everything about it works. And of course, Shatner absolutely owns his position in it. When you have a set which is that powerful, you need to have somebody in the in the central chair who knows how to kind of, I hate to use the word dominate, but how to dominate that entire environment. And that's another thing that Shatner is really good at. But yeah, everything about that bridge design is simply perfect. Yeah, I can't agree more. It's it's so perfect. And even when they move to these sort of guest locations, let's call them, they're only going to use for that week. And that's when it gets a little ropier. Sometimes it's just a cave with glowing rocks. Sometimes it's a college campus. Sometimes it's the soundstage next door dressed for a Western that we have to just throw some random stuff on. And even still, I genuinely think it's a good use of resource. Like, when you're aware of the budget, sure, but they rarely intentionally go in half-cocked with these sort of things. It always feels like they tried their best to create a new environment and really swung hard. And sometimes it hits, sometimes it doesn't. But that is, I think, the overall impression of Star Trek Season 1 is that they never really phoned it in. Well, absolutely. And I think it's an interesting point you make there about like the budget and the and and sort of, you know, whether something looks cheap because it's gone down in legend now that, you know, like Star Trek was a cheap show and you know, like wobble the camera for the ship shaking, but Star Trek wasn't a cheap show. Star Trek was extremely expensive and all the money is up there on on screen. A lot of it is sunk into things like the bridge set or like the special right. effects of the Enterprise. But again, the special effects of the Enterprise are still worth looking at now because they spent so much time and money on them then. Like the Enterprise itself is a classic piece of design. Of course it is. It's an absolute icon, not just of science fiction, but I would argue of American culture full stop. It's an amazing piece of design. They spent a lot of time and a lot of money on it. Star Trek wasn't a cheap show and all the kind of hacky gags from sort of comedians in the 70s about, you know, wobbly sets and, you know, and then Doctor Who, of course, suffered from exactly the same thing. But Doctor Who really was a cheap show, you know, next to the likes of Star Trek. Star Trek had a lot of time and resources lavished on it to the point where it basically bankrupts, uh, you know, Desilu Studios. It's an amazingly well funded show and the conviction you know they kept pouring money into it even when you know the absolute financial limits were were being hit and again like it's it's a shame that desilu suffered for that but and the uh, on the other hand what you have is an absolute classic and yeah of course there's episodes where you go well the money's run out now but i, I Again, it's it all comes back to conviction. Sure, on on something like um, oh, I don't know, uh, this side of paradise. Sure, they go to a western set and mess about in a few fields and hang off a tree, but it doesn't matter. It's an alien environment because that's how everybody treats it. You know, I can question where the bricks come from, but ultimately, it really doesn't matter. It's about how much the characters are prepared to invest in that being the reality of where they are this week. All of it works. All of it is uh, conviction and all of it lands. And yeah, you can have hacky jokes about how cheap it is, but it really isn't. Ultimately, Star Trek triumphed much more than much more than the tacky comedians. Yes. And when I say budget limitations, I don't mean like um, 
that it was there was a cheap show. I definitely I know you weren't saying I was saying that. Oh no no. Of course. To clarify, yeah yeah. I like this was a show that was so ambitious. They were trying their best. The budget limitations were not on how much Desi invested in it, but just how much a TV show in the '60s could produce and how much was expected to give a TV show in the '60s. Um, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I'm I'm just let me indulge me while I do my quick inflation calculator right now. Um, I just did the reverse, and these TV shows you hear about with a two hundred million dollar budgets, of course, of a six or eight episode season. Talking like, let's round that down to what um, twenty million episode. So we are talking like two million in today's dollar, like two million ninety six seven dollars is what I'm seeing here for that sort of calculation. That's um, not bad. Yeah. On the flip side, Star Trek season two got like 167. Uh, what is it? I'm seeing 190,000 episodes, uh, dollars per episode. Uh, excuse me, stripping my words. I try to do this. So they were not getting millions per episode. They're getting 190,000 or uh, da, 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 oh, about a million, 1.7 million per episode. So actually that is roughly comparable. But there's just like limits to how much they could do across 20 episodes as well. 29 episodes. It's a lot of money. And yeah, if it's trying, I'm just trying to do some math in my head. So it's an expensive show. It's an expensive show for that time. It's a big budget show. And yet it still holds up better than, and you're getting more money for your value than a secret invasion or <laughs> to <laughs> cite one recent example. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah, they did. I mean, that is perspective. Wow. It is like, a modern budget for a TV show Star Trek was getting. And then you just have to keep in mind what was available at the sixties and what they could do and how much value they got out of just like story and cast as well. That combination of just everything is why it's such a, such a special show. It's why so much of it hangs together and why, you know, people like me have been watching it for the entirety of their lives and you know why we're still getting new shows based around it you know if this season hadn't worked that's the other thing if this season hadn't worked the whole history of star trek wouldn't exist now i'm occasionally uh, inclined to say that the most important casting decision star trek ever made was patrick stewart i don't mean that as an insult to william shatner or to leonard demoy but um, the whole of uh, post-TNG, I think, largely comes down to how well and how much conviction uh, Patrick Stewart was able to invest in in, Patrick, in uh, Captain Picard. But the, the earlier version of that is absolutely how much the first season of Star Trek is able to convince us that it's worth going on. You know, there's, there's no other Star Trek if this season doesn't work. Doesn't matter how expensive or cheap it is. It doesn't matter how great or bad Lin, uh, Shatner or Namoy or Kelly are. It doesn't matter how good or bad the scripts are. It, it just it needs a, a sort of alchemical spark. It needs something to go, yeah, this is work. This is working. It carries on. It will be something that continues. Now, we know from our perspective, in fact, it will continue for two seasons and then the show will dead end. That's fine. Because also from our perspective, we know that that's not going to be the end of the story. But whatever it is that works about this first season is going to be 
everything going forward. You know, we often talk about franchises or Star Trek as a franchise or Doctor Who or whatever it is. But, you know, this is season one of the first show. It's not a franchise. It's not an anything. It's just a TV show. And that conviction and that necessity for it to work is what drives absolutely everything else forward. So I think it's another thing that this season, I don't really know it gets the credit for it. So people talk about the original series being, you know, responsible for all the Star Trek that comes after it. But specifically, I think this first season is responsible for that. The next two seasons will have their highs and their lows, I think it's fair to say. But this season, almost all of it is high. I mean, I'm looking down the episode list now, and we have 29 episodes. I reckon three of them are really bad, and almost everything is either good or better. And that's an astonishing hit rate for any TV series. I think we agree on the same three, Miri, Spacey, and Alternative Factor. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then Operation Annihilate's kind of an edge case, and everything else, yeah, I gave, a, I gave speaking of ratings, a six or higher. So, um, yeah, it's it's a remarkably solid, consistent season of television. Um, everything at least has something of value outside of a select few episodes. That is that has a great hit rate. And, yeah, if the season isn't as strong, you don't get the next two seasons. You don't get all the, to- the animated series, all the talk of phase two, these actors doing conventions for years, and that leads to movies and that leads to next generation. Like this season keeps the show in public consciousness for like basically a decade and a half until they get their druthers around to make, start making movies and then really put Star Trek as like a franchise um, fully in motion. I'm looking at when Star Trek the motion picture came out, 1979. So it's a decade. They have to keep it in public consciousness for a decade until people come back around and realize this is a franchise that is franchisable and here to stay. And I think even with, I think this season needs to kick that off in motion. Like you said, it is perfect in that um, regard. Uh, I think our discussion is wrapping down now. The last thing we wanted to talk about is what some of our favorite episodes were. Um, JG, I will throw to you first, and maybe start with maybe something that like maybe improved on this watch or a highlight like that, and then we just go back and forth a little bit. Yeah, that sounds good. It's 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 amazing that we've managed to go almost an hour talking about this show, and we could just carry on. It's it's yeah. so easy to get carried away with this uh, with this season, but it is it's a great season of TV. Um, I think one of the episodes like, I've seen a lot of these episodes, um, many many times um and there are a few that i've always loved like i've always loved the galileo 7 i always thought it was great of course you have a city on the edge of forever and you have balance of terror there's nothing really remarkable about pointing out how good they are what i think i probably would say was that um a couple of episodes i think really kind of shot up in my estimation um one and i i'm as surprised as anyone but the conscience of the king I think was a really interesting episode. I don't think it's a perfect episode. I don't think it's an ideal episode of television, but there are so many concepts in it that I think land. There are so many background details that I think are easy to kind of miss or forget if you just go, some hammy actor is a bad guy. He killed some people. Kirk finds him. I mean, that is the plot, but that's not really what it's about. And it, it builds very, very nicely. The conclusion is maybe slightly weak. Oh, she's mad. But uh, but I think there's so many fascinating details in that episode that I really 
I really love the way that it has kind of improved with age and the fact that it's, I mean, it is hammy, but it's consciously hammy because it's dealing with actors. It's of course, extremely informed by Shakespeare and it's kind of in a way it kind of ducks criticism of being hammy simply because that's kind of the point. Um, I don't know. I, I just, I really enjoyed it on a rewatch. And the more I think about that episode, the more, I think it works. It's not. It's not perfect. The ending is weak, but it there, there's just so many great things about it. And again, I'm trying to steer clear of the more of. Of course, I'd love to be able to say nice things about the Devil in the Dark, but everybody says nice things about the Devil in the Dark. That's that's not very impressive. Um, I think. Oh, I'm, I'm trying to think of a really good second episode that that I just. Oh, God, there's so many that I enjoyed I so much going I, through this. Quick, step I, in and help me here. Yes, I can take over uh, and toss it back to you later. But uh, yeah, Conscious of a King, it's, that is an interesting one because that is one I'm, I'm looking at our spreadsheet of grades right now. As one we both gave a 7 out of 10, I would stand by that grade, but it's such a stickier 7 out of 10 mm. than a Charlie X or an Errand of Mercy or a Tomorrow's Yesterday. I mean, Aaron Mercer is actually kind of interesting as well, but like you know, some of the other sevens we gave were just like, oh, solid down the middle, uh, interesting stuff. Uh, Conscious of a King, yeah, there's a little bit of stickiness to it. There's a little bit of what stuff to recommend there that was just really fascinating. Um, I think, uh, yeah, for my, I think I'm talking about this because it's so much more boring because I don't have a perspective of what improved for me or what is something people don't talk about as much because I don't have that perspective. All I can do is say, <laughs> Balance of Terror, amazing episode. <laughs> um, but like I knew Bounce Hero was an amazing episode going in. Seeing the Age of Forever, Devil in the Dark. Those were like the three I sort of knew of and the three that are my my top three if I'm picking them. Um, there's a couple others I gave like a nine to though as well. I think one I want to highlight is Squire of Gothos. The format is one I'm very familiar with, with the aforementioned pastiches. A godlike being toys with everyone until uh, they get bored. But that one's so funny. I'll, I'll highlight that in Shore Leave as well, and that one's a little weaker. But both of them, I think, highlight humor for the show in ways that I wasn't expecting. And, oh, Naked Time as well, which is much earlier. That is what I'm going to say with those three episodes is, yeah, the show has got really funny when it wanted to be, and it was successful at it. It wasn't like, oh, you're trying something. And sometimes it was, oh, you're trying something. <laughs> like with Mud's Woman, or and which I still liked on balance but you know not as effectively um and no the the comedy episodes here i think really do stand out as like legitimate ways to structure and frame this show i agree i think it really helps to broaden the palette of what star trek can do and for all that we can praise you know like the big dramatic emotional highs of uh, balance of terror or you know city in the edge of forever the fact that it can just go and just be like goofy and daft which is which is pretty much all shore leave is i mean there's a vague sense of threat but nothing nothing too serious you know um you know it, it gives it somewhere to go and even tomorrow is yesterday which is you know I mean, it's it's pretty much strictly played for laughs. There's not a great sense of um, tension or, or drama right. in it. But even even that, and even the fact that you know it's a bit of a cheapie, um, it still works because it gives the show somewhere else to uh, go. It gives it some territory that it hasn't really touched on before, other than um, like the very end of the Naked Time. It's actually the first 
proper like time travel episodes we get in Star Trek, that alone makes it stand out because it's doing something new. And the idea that we can combine a new way of telling Star Trek stories and a comedy and still manage to have at least a little bit of drama in it. I mean, that's that's pretty impressive. It's not my favorite episode of the season by any stretch of the imagination, but I admire the fact that the show is prepared to go to those kind of places. And if it isn't always successful, it at least provides a template for other episodes, you know, in the future, which will take that and sort of run with it. I think one of the, one of the things that, um, that original um, collection of episodes in the first season does is that it is all it, it, in a way it's all set up because every almost every single episode pretty much every single episode actually we will have another version of if not in the original series in next gen in ds9 voyager or whatever and that speaks to you know how successful these episodes are um like even even something like you know the courtroom drama of court martial you know contemporaneously 1967 it looks like it's aping you know perry mason or any other number of you know legal um procedural shows but going forwards we'll get the measure of a man and we'll get you know all these other kind of episodes which are absolutely using that specific episode as a template rather than kind of generic television uh procedural uh, dramas about about law and that's really important i, I don't love court martial as an episode it's certainly not my favorite episode of the season but it's really pushing the limits of what a show like Star Trek can do. There's there's no episode of the Twilight Zone that looks like Court Martial. There's no episodes of 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 Lost in Space that looks like Court Martial. It's genuinely something that is being brought into the science fiction playbook that really just doesn't exist before this. And I think it's it's a great precedent for the rest of this franchise. Uh, at the time of this recording, both JG and I have seen three episodes of Strange New World season two. And that is such a good torchbearer where those three episodes are an action-packed shoot 'em up, a another, as aforementioned, court trial episode, and then a time travel romance, uh, like City on the Edge of Forever. And yeah, that's a good range that a lot of modern shows, like other Star Trek shows, will just stick to one genre and one story arc and plug it in and go eight to ten episodes just off of that uh the range of strange new worlds is just so uh wonderful and it owes it all to how the range of this show and i was willing to really experiment episode episode in ways that aren't as obvious as like a show doing it nowadays like when i think of a show that experiments with genre episode to episode i think of like a show like community which did which hung a lampshade on it every time it did it but this just so casually moved can different like tones and genres and i don't know i that was really nice of it i i missed that a lot in our science fiction um only doctor who to bring it up again is the only other show that really can do that so easily oh absolutely and that sort of genre fluidity if you will is one of the things that again not being tied down by serialization allows the show to be able to get away with. So yeah, one week it's a courtroom drama, one week it's a straightforward comedy, one week it's a Shakespearean tragedy, one week it's a character analysis. You know, it just clips through all of these without really pausing for breath. And it does it just because that's how 
this show functions. It's not self-conscious about it. It's not meta. It's not reflexive. It just does these things because these are the things it does. Um, it, it adds so much texture to the reality of, of the Enterprise crew. And it makes it really easy to buy into the idea that this is just a spaceship which is flying about the place. Because, yeah, every week, that's what they're doing. They're coming up against pizza monsters. They're coming up against some guy with a really, really ropey nylon beard that isn't convincing anyone. And then, like you said, next week, it's probably some kind of time travel cave. And then after that, flying pancakes. Fantastic. Um, it, it's just so effortless and it doesn't have any sense of predetermination you just don't know what you're going to get next week and that's part of the pleasure of it that variety that whole ability to just jump from genre to genre without really thinking about it means that it never becomes stale um we were both extremely harsh on space seed as an episode and i maintain that we were correct to be so because i think it's a really terrible piece of television for any number of reasons but it's still doing something that the rest of the show hasn't done it's it's putting the characters in an unfamiliar situation it's it's dealing with things that i guess at least seem faintly credible at the time the idea of cryogenics and all that kind of stuff um, the idea of eugenics is brought up, you know, there's, there's interesting things in there, even if the episode itself is is really bad. Um, and, you know, it's trapped in between uh, Return of the Archons, which is, you know, your standard Lost Colony, bloody blah, blah, computers take over the world, and, and um, you know, A Taste of Armageddon, which is a sort of a war parable. And, you know, individually, Space Seed doesn't look very good. Because it isn't. But seen as a run of episodes and, and squeezed in between two other stories, which are completely different, both from Space Seed and from each other, it, it kind of makes more logical sense. So even if that individual episode falls down, you know, you have enough sense of momentum that it's it's not in any way going to, to derail the season. I think that's the perfect way to wrap it up. I can't think of any better just sort of mission statement for how well this season turned out. Um, quick correction before, I think I was saying before that Star Trek episodes with inflation were comparable to modern TV shows with budgets. I, I was off by a factor of 10. Modern TV shows are actually, wait, 10 to 20 million, and this is offering a budget of 1.7. So I feel like, <laughs> I it, like uh, yeah, this actually was working with limitations and getting a lot of bang out of the buck in a way a lot of uh, current TV shows don't. At least the bigger, high-budget, prestige, notable ones. I'm sure there's plenty of uh, cheapo TV series still out there carrying the Star Trek torch. And even though Star Trek was not ex expensive for your time, like you said, JG, now it's it feels cheap today because our standards have gone up so much. And I almost kind of wish they didn't. Um, yes, uh, I think that sort of wraps up the discussion. And I'm going to be the one tossing the scores this time because I am going to say I have the knowledge that I have averaged all our scores from across the season, but JG wanted me to keep that number quiet until you gave your score for season one as a whole. Right, this could go terribly wrong. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I have a feeling that the score that I'm going to give for the overall season is probably going to be a bit higher than the average score, but I don't know what my average is. So, I reckon this season is probably, oh, I reckon it's maybe an eight and a half or a nine. It, it's an amazing season 
of television. The moments where it's fallen short, it has kind of let the side down. But there are so few, uh, so far and few between. And the sense of momentum and the enthusiasm and the simple joy of coming to it every week is just incredibly infectious. So even though I might quibble about individual episodes, I think overall as a season of television, like three dud episodes out of 29 is astonishing. So, oh God. Yeah, like I know if I give it a nine, there's no way this is gonna, that's going to be my average, but I kind of think that's what it deserves. I think this deserves a nine out of 10. So that's what I'm going to give it. All right. Uh uh, do you want me to, how do you want me to do this? Say my score first and then go into averages? Or Yeah, go on. Okay. You gave a good argument for me bumping my score up to nine because it is such a historically significant show. It is, um, and the highlights are such highlights. And I don't think our final score has to resemble the average. I think it has no. to be our gut instinct of this is what it's worth as a whole document rather than this is just the sum of its part is just all the individual parts added up. Um, Gosh, I I think I'm going to stick to eight overall because there were those runs, not just like the three bad episodes, but the runs of things like Tomorrow's Yesterday into Court Martial into Return of the Archons and then into Space Seed. But like those three that I, before Space Seed are just like, oh, that was good and pleasant, but not blowing my mind. Like there's three bad episodes, but there's also only about a half dozen truly mind-blowing this is incredible television episodes that would give a nine or a ten to and so i think there's a there's a ad there's a groove it gets in that's very admirable and i don't know maybe i'll like season two more i know season three has i've understood it hits the more production problems and budget issues and things and so it's a less love season but i really don't want to say i don't know it almost feels wrong if this might be the best season to hit the ceiling at eight because it is so much more than that but, uh, yeah, I just think it's not a perfect show. There's definitely room. I, it could have been tightened up. And I'm almost making the case against 20 episode seasons by saying that. If I think there's 10 episodes you could cut or so. But, yeah, I think I'm going to settle on eight. That feels right. And maybe I'll regret it down the line. Well, you know, if you decide further down the line to revise it upwards or downwards, then, you know, that's okay. Yep. I mean, it's always it's always interesting to see how these things develop because obviously you don't know what's coming up next. Yeah, we're uh, just doing this for fun. Exactly. Um, uh, your average score, JG, was 6.9. Really? It's yeah. that low? Wow, I, okay. I, as a, while you were talking, I, as a funic thought experiment, took out the bottom three episodes, which you gave Miri 2, Space Seed 1.5, Alternative Factor 2. Take those out at 7.5. So that is really bringing your average down. Okay. Yeah. No, that's fair. And I think that average is, like you said, like there were a lot of episodes where we kind of had a shrug reaction to. And we got good discussion out of them. But um, I think that does just like weight it towards a sort of seven. Uh, for the reference, mine's 7.2, which I think does match up if you consider the fact that you are sometimes going a 0.5 lower than me. Yeah. That but that's sense. roughly the same grade. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, I would consider a 6.5 rounded up. I would round that up if I was converting from one counting system to another, let's say. So, yeah, I think that generally lines up. Um, we had pretty similar opinions that there's no... I was thinking about I mean, how many episodes we really differed on, and there's not really many. Uh, the only two episodes we have a more than one point gap on are Miri and Space Siege, and I think you just went lower on those out of spite. So, <laughs> there's... <laughs> 
Yeah, we were, yeah, that, that, that tracks. High large and line, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, yeah, great season of television, and I can't wait to watch more. And I think that's probably a perfect place to leave season one. But before we dive into season two, we have to have our, our recommendations. So Kev, what have you got for us this week? So we're talking earlier about shows that are very flexible with genre. And I think there's only sort of a couple other shows that come to mind that really could pull this off. Um, there's my beloved Farscape, which I think I've talked about enough, like, and, and just talked about enough in these sort of space opera circles. You can never talk are, enough about Farscape. Yeah, true. But I also think it doesn't have quite the range I'm looking for in terms of Star Trek and Doctor Who level range. I think the only show that really comes close to them is really my beloved and canceled Legends of Tomorrow, which is a very odd uh, example because it's part of a larger TV universe franchise with these DC comic heroes, even though very few characters from DC comics wind up in the show. Uh, it's such an odd duck. And it's just on top of mind because I think the Arrowverse has ended. All the shows have wrapped up and Superman and Lois was declared non-canon. So that means it's done. <laughs> um... And when people were memorializing it, people had kind words to say about Arrow and, for some reason, The Flash. But Legend of Tomorrow, I kept seeing discussion calls. I was like, yeah, I watched one or two seasons of the show and then fell off. And I've seen the clip where Gorilla Grodd threatens Obama, and that's pretty funny. And people don't realize that once that happens in you know, the end of season three, where, to reiterate, if you haven't seen this clip floating on Twitter, a talking gorilla threatens Barack Obama when he's in college and time travelers go and stop him. Um that carries that tone throughout the rest of the run. And it is incredible. There were so many different genres it was trying out. There were so many fun characters. And even though they didn't have serialized arcs, every episode, they were very flexible with their tone and genre and what they were trying to do. And it was just, it didn't hit the same dramatic highs ever, I would say, as a Star Trek or Doctor Who could. They never really got super serious. It kept on the light and frothy fair. But in terms of just like how it was flexing, it was such an impressive show for its run. And this, I encourage to not take the anthropological perspective. Just start with season three. You don't need to watch any of the other connected Arrow or Flash or Batwoman shows either. Just uh, Google whatever is unclear to you what's getting lost in the shuffle. Uh, the crossover is going to be difficult, but I trust you. you have Wikipedia at your hand. You can manage. Just watch Legends of Tomorrow starting with season three. It is a remarkable show with incredible characters and that has such a flexibility and fun that we admire from Star Trek, as we've just been discussing. Well, uh, you already know, Kev, but I couldn't yes. second your recommendation more. I loved Legends of Tomorrow. I'm very sad that it's finished. And uh, there are a few shows which managed to take quite so many big swings and managed to make so many of them actually connect. It is a brilliant show. But I'm, I'm going to recommend something um, very different. Um, I'm going to recommend a uh, British uh, drama series called The Syndicate. Uh, it's uh, about four, it's four seasons long. Each season is uh, self-contained. And basically in each season, uh, a syndicate of people um, win the lottery. And it's about the way that it affects their lives. Um, it's a really fantastic uh, series. It's very, very well put together. It's got uh, it's got an amazing cast that include people like Mark Addy and Alison Steadman and Timothy Spall. Uh, it's a great little piece of drama. Uh, it is written by and created uh, by Kate Meller, 
uh, an amazing writer, and she really is so good at being able to tap into uh, working class life, working class experiences without just falling back in the cliches of kind of hardship or, oh, woe is me or kitchen sink drama. They're really compelling pieces of drama. The first two seasons in particular are absolutely outstanding. The third and fourth, they're worth watching. They're maybe not quite the same high. Um, but they're just really great pieces of drama. And uh, every single character is memorable. Everybody is giving like career best performances. There's so much to enjoy and, and take pleasure from. It's such a it's such a simple premise and it sounds so easy. Oh, people win the lottery and this is what happens to them. And yet they manage to spin so much drama and, and, and heart and humanity out of it. It's never corny. It's never obvious. And it manages to just be such a, a perfect little piece of uh, slice of life drama. I must be honest, I have no idea what its availability is in America. In the UK, it's on ITVX and I think now television. Um, but if you can get hold of it through whatever means one chooses to get a hold of uh, television, then it's well worth watching. That's the syndicate. Excellent. Uh, I, I did just look up where it was available, and it is available if you have a library card through Hoopla. And if you don't, you can watch with ads on Freebie, which is the free version of Amazon Prime. I don't know why they don't just call it Amazon Prime, but it's free on there. I don't know. That feels very... I, the, the separation of brands there is very confusing to me. But yes, uh, Freebie on the Amazon Prime app, uh, which you just watch for free with ads. But yes, Syndicate is available in America as well. Sounds Fantastic. very interesting. Yeah, yeah it's it, it's a great show. If you, if you're just looking for a good drama that you can watch, then then that's that's the one to go to. But um, yeah, I think we can probably wrap things up for there. Um, Kev, would you care to tell people how they can get in touch with us? All right. Um, I can't remember if we talked about this last time, but I am sort of more quiet on Twitter these days <laughs> because of everything. Uh, because of just the app is functioning less, and I've decided to go a little more anonymous. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's now at the same as my display name, at Max Rebo's Roadie, like the um, blue elephant from Star Wars, but the person who would set up his speakers. Um, <laughs> but I also post on there less. I am posting a little more on Blue Sky, which is a little more private and a little more chill. But otherwise, uh, yeah, I guess you can find me there if you want. You can definitely find Talking Trek to you at Talk Trek to you on Twitter. You can find more JJ's writings at www.jgmcquarry.scott, J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E.scott. Um, I also frequently guest on the podcast Total Massacre, hosted by Rowan Kaiser about action movies. JG also has the podcast Beatles Stuffology, where he and Andrew D can go through the Beatles track by track. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcatcher you use to help other people find us. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Next time, we will be launching into season two of the original show, which means we're going to be covering a mock time. Yeah, it's time for that one. Fantastic. I'm very much looking forward to it, of course. So, yeah, that's going to be season two. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking. Keep talking.